need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get one passed out to you. If, uh, if you do have the app or um, any other way to get uh, on the Bible on your phone or something, you can do that as well. <clears throat> We're going to be... What's up, everybody? Yeah. Uh, it's good to be back. Last Sunday... Um, Raise your, were you, raise your hand if you were here last Sunday for Pastor Paul. Pastor Paul is a man, huh? Yeah, he was cool. I was stoked that he was able to uh, fill in, and uh, he brought a great, great message uh, with, in, from, with some encounters with Jesus and where we find our identity, and man, it was really good. Last Sunday, at this time, I was snowboarding, and um, I'm not going to lie, felt a little weird to be shredding on a Sunday. Every time I stopped and thought about it, I was like, man, I don't snowboard on Sunday too often. But um, it was like Chariots of Fire. Any of you seen that movie where he didn't race on Sunday? And he was this great dilemma where he was like, God, I'm going to butcher it and paraphrase it because it's been forever. But it was something along the lines of God made this day set apart the Sunday. And he said, but he also made me fast. And he was just living in that, that dilemma of life. Well, last Sunday was... Uh, a day for my boys and I to, there's a snowboard race. It's the oldest going snowboard contest that there is. 37 years it's been going at our little mountain, Mount Baker. And uh, it was the locals qualifier. So if you live here and you're trying to qualify to get into the race next year, it was this last weekend. And uh, we all went on Sunday and um, we all qualified. So me and the boys... Uh, both the boys shredded really good, and the old man made it in too. So, um, yeah. So thanks for praying for us. It's a weird thing. It's like when you pray for your favorite football team to win. It's like, does God really hear that prayer? Um, yeah. <laughs> Somebody says. So anyways, we're going to go back into our series in the book of Mark, okay? So if you have a Bible or you can get God's Word in front of you, we're going to be in the book, the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be in chapter 8, verses 27 through 38, in a message that I have entitled, well, I had it titled three different things, because I tried to distill it down into what is it that we are talking about today, and we sang it in the second song, um, No Way, I had it entitled No Way Back. Uh, and then that, we just sang it, and I was like, man, maybe I should have left it at that. But here's what I'm going to preach to you today. It's called this, The Great Exchange. The Great Exchange. So let me read these verses to you, and then we will get into it. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. And yes, we did these verses a couple weeks ago, but... I want to hit them again because they fit with what we're, what we're going to talk about today. Starting in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, and underline this, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him, 
verse 31. And he, and then you can underline this, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. These are the people that are going to reject him. And be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called the crowd to him with his disciples. And he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him or them, let them deny themselves, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Verse 36. For Jesus still speaking. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his very soul? For what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For whatever, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's heavy stuff. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. We thank you, Lord, that as we, here's what we know. We know that you want to teach us something in your word that is alive and active, speaks to our very depths of our being. You want to teach us something more about who you are, the love that you have, not just for us, but for the world around us, and the work that you are doing on earth, the work that has been done on our behalf. All of these things are working together. And in this moment, with all of these different people in this room, there can be a, a radical crossover from heaven and earth, from one person to another. So, Lord, we just open ourselves up to you as we open your word, and we ask that you would speak to us in a fresh way, that we would understand things of God in a new way, that we would be able to apply them in a new way. So we love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the great exchange. Now, I had us back up and start in verse 27, and if you guys remember from a couple of weeks ago, that's where we left off. We talked about seeing things clearly. And just as a, as a 10 cent um, recap, um, we left off, and here's what Jesus was wanting to show us. Remember, it, through the, the three different accounts, uh, the blind man that he healed, um, talking to uh, the feeding of the 4,000, and, and then asking this question to Peter. He wanted us to see the kingdom clearly meaning that Jesus is, was doing a work here with these people that could be confusing at times, that they didn't understand. They were arguing about if they brought bread in the boat, and Jesus was like, hey, how many people did I just feed? They said 5,000. He said, how many 
baskets did you take up? They said 12. And he goes, and then when I fed 4,000, how many baskets? So they were focused on their own kingdoms. We're hungry. How are we going to take care of ourselves? And he was like, no, I want you to see that I'm doing something bigger. I got you dialed in, but the kingdom of God is, is bigger than, than what your focus is. Wanted to us to see ourselves clearly, hence the blind man. And Jesus, remember Hoktalugi, maybe? And we were trying to figure out what type of spit it was. And, and, and put it on the, the man's eyes, and he said, do you see? And he said, I see sort of, um, but not totally clearly. And, uh, and then he did an, another work, and he was able to, to see all the way. And we know that the, the kingdom work in our lives is a process. We see things. We're all blind at one point. Jesus has done a work in many of our lives and believing for, for many more people. And we start to see things a little bit more clearly. But there's always going to be this thing, as a follower of Jesus for sure, where you don't see everything clearly. That's faith. It's being like, Lord, I don't understand this. We're in process. And, and walking in faith is saying, Lord, there are certain things I can see. There are certain things I can't quite see, but I'm going to trust you anyways because he says that he sees all things perfectly clear. So we're in process. And the third one was see Jesus clearly. This is where we're going to park it today for a while because it's so important and it's such a missing thing in our world. You could ask, and I've done this before, gone down to Boulevard Park, and I just filmed with my phone one time, and I asked the first, I can't remember, 20 people I found, um, who is Jesus? And people, you know, you get like the, people think you're selling them something, so they just don't even say anything. Or, you know, they say what they think. I just wanted to do this experiment, and uh, just to see, and you could ask 10 different people, you'll get 10 different answers. Jesus asked here, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Some said John the Baptist, others Elijah. Now these are, John the Baptist was a prophet um, that was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. He was bold in speech. He spoke out uh, against political uh, injustice and domination by the by the Roman government, he was, he was uh, a bold guy. Um, there was Elijah. Elijah was similar in his time. But they said, or one of the prophets. And then he asked them, so we're going to look at this from Peter's point of view. Then he asked them, who do you say that I am? Asking the disciples. There's, there's a point he wants to make. He wants them to sit. He wants what to be said here to be said. We're going to go with that. This is what he wants. Peter answered him. This is what Peter said. You are the Christ. So you could ask 10 different people, who is Jesus? And you might hear, here's some things you hear in our day and age. He was a good teacher. Uh, in our culture, people like to, probably this. He was a he was a good human being, because that's what we want to be, good humans, right? And of course, but that's what people say. He was a good human. Like, well, what does that mean? 
well, he taught good things. He lived a moral lifestyle. There's a lot of different things. And then he says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter says, you are the Christ. And we get a little bit of, um, I call it a splash of color on this text. If you look at what Ma- at Matthew's account, it adds a little something that's pretty awesome. It's Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. And after Peter says this, it says, And Jesus answered him back, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. So another person didn't tell you this. But my Father who is in heaven, meaning this was a spiritual work done in Peter's life. You could have been told by a hundred people, heard a hundred messages from a hundred pastors, done classes, different things, but it wasn't from another person. This was a spiritual thing that happened in his life, and Jesus is acknowledging that. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Verse 18. And I te- he said, now let me, I want to tell you something. You are Peter. So he says, you are the Savior, the Christ. I'll get into other words for what Christ means. But it's like I joked a couple of weeks ago. And it's like the best equivalent you have culturally is every movie that the prophecy was given about the one that would restore balance to the galaxy. All these stories, they're from good and evil. Ultimately, from the things that scripture talks about, Neo in the Matrix, like we love the person that restores balance, that rights all of the wrongs, all of the injustices that brings the world back into order. And so we think of Luke Skywalker, we think of Neo, but really all of these things come from our ultimate hope. And that's what Peter is saying. You're the one. It's what Messiah means. It means the one, the special one, the foretold one the promised one, the anointed one, the powerful one. He's like, it's you. And Jesus receives that and he goes, and you're Peter. Now that we have that square, who I am to you and who you are to me. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What a powerful moment. I'm calling this Peter's no way back moment or his threshold moment, this moment where you cross into a new place in your understanding in life, that once you take that step, in essence, there's no going back. You can look back and think about what life would be like back there, but once you know that Jesus is the one, it changes you forever, and you can never go back to how you were. If you truly step into that place where He says, who am I? And you say, you're the one. Your life is forever changed. I remember this moment in my life. This season of my life. And I don't have a, people. some people have a salvation date. Much like someone in their world, they remember the day they got sober, the day this happened. Their brains just work that way. I can't tell you the day that I said that I had this. You are the one. But I can remember the season of my life, and it goes something like this. God was doing some things in my life that in the moment felt like he was just really messing with me. 
stuff was like, oh, what is going on? I started to feel these odd sensations like sin (laughs) and like guilt. Like I felt bad for stuff that was like normal for so long in my life. And I was like, oh, what is wrong with me? The story is way too long to tell, but in this season of life, I got invited to start uh, participating or being part of a Christian, a Jesus following, because you could ask 10 people, what does Christian mean? You might get 10 different answers. (laughs) Nine of them might be bad. So I started um, being included and invited in a family that loved God and followed him and loved me and allowed me to come in and was always inviting me. Yes, I was dating their daughter. Yes, I was bad news. Um, But there was a love and a safety in this place, and they invited me in, and so they were like, would you come to church with us, you know? That's what, you know, it's that easy to invite someone to church, by the way. Hey, how you doing? What do you do on the weekends? You ever, you ever been to church? If you think what we have going on here is cool, and I hope that you do, I promise you, others would as well. It's that easy. Man, you should come. Actually, I met several people this morning that were invited from a neighbor or a friend or a family member, and that's what it's all about. And so I was invited along. He began, Jesus was doing things, and when I came to the realization that Jesus was real, that he was the one, that he wanted me to know who he was, before he told me what he wanted me to do to follow him, it changed my life forever. And God started to build his kingdom in my life. It wasn't the kingdom of earth that I was used to. It was the kingdom of God. It's taken me, you know, I don't know. I was 17. I'm 43. You do the math. And he's been slowly, I've been in process, and he's building and I'm learning things, and I'm coming into new understandings, and I'm sharing with people, with wherever they're at, saying, this is what God is doing. This is what the Word of God says. This is the work of the Spirit in your life. And I want to tell you something. Everything that I have allowed Jesus to do in my life has been infinitely better than all of the things I did for myself. Like all of the things that I did for me, that I wanted to satisfy me, when I came to the realization of who Jesus is, and then I allowed him to have say over my will, over my actions. There is not one thing that he has done a worse job at than me. As a matter of fact, his track record is perfect. And as I have opened up different parts of my life to him and obeyed him, he says, if you love me, you will obey me. As I have done these things, even if it's been a civil war on the inside because I didn't want to, every single time, 100% of the time, what he has done has been like infinitely better than what I have ever done for myself. So Jesus is asking two things in this. These are two questions we're going to answer, okay? We're going to answer two of them. First one, who is Jesus? And the second one, what does it look like to follow Jesus? Who is Jesus? 
What does it look like to follow him? Those are two things that he's sharing in this. Who do people say that I am? And then he says, if you want to follow me, then he lays some stuff out. So Peter calls him the Messiah or the Christ. And I I define that for you. It means the promised one, the, the savior. They had been waiting for a Messiah, the Jewish people, for a long time. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament alone, in your Bible, it's broken up into two testaments or covenants is another word for the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. You read just in between them, 430 years. That's just the, the, this one period in between the covenant. They've been waiting for this one that was promised. You can actually go all the way back to Genesis in the third chapter, I think, and get glimpses of right after sin entered the world, there's this first promise that comes in that the one will come who will make it right. And they had been waiting, and God had established a Jewish people, a Jewish nation, a Jewish faith to bring this one that was going to be called the Messiah, the Savior. And if you were waiting for a Savior of a national a, a nation in a people group that was oppressed by another nation and people group your messiah would look like a super um ba fighter ruler and would come in and would uh rid you of the oppressor so they were waiting for the messiah but he looked different than what they got in jesus kind of like the saviors that we are looking for look a lot different than Jesus. The ones that we place all of our faith and hope and trust and promise and votes and all the things, but a lot of times it's because the one that we need looks different than what what we think. So when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Where do I fit into people's world, he might say. So I just pose this question to each one of you today, and I want you to ask it and keep asking it and let it eat at you because it ate at me for a long time until I could come to this place. And we, it's important that we identify who Jesus is before we ever identify what does he want me to do. So let me just ask you, where does Jesus fit into your world? Is he a part of a big picture? Is he another voice, like a prophet? One of the prophets? Does he timeshare your world with other voices? If any podcasters in here? Oh, not that if you make them, you listen to them. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I love it. But it's funny because it's like you get this person gets an hour, this person gets an hour, this person, the content you're taking in, movies we watch. Where does does Jesus? If you broke down the time, how much how much time does his voice get by percentage to the other voices? It's like ooh, I didn't know you're gonna cut that cuts deep, man. Where does he fit? Is he a piece or is he the one? that everything is centered around? It's a good question. And the way you answer that question will direct the course of your life. 
there's one question that you could ask and one question that you could answer that will change the way your life is. It's this. Who do you say that Jesus is? It's worth thinking about it all the time. If you've never thought about that before, you're welcome. There's a tough, there's, there's a question that as you ponder, it will tear you down to the deepest parts of who you are. And it, everything that we're going to read next doesn't fit into place without answering that question. There are many ways to respond to this question where Jesus is just a part of your life. If he's just another voice, you'll take him in along with others. But there is only one statement where he is the anchor of your soul, where he is the author of life, where he is the good shepherd, where he is the way, the truth, the life, where Jesus is God, the one that everything centers around. Because transformation comes when Jesus is at the center and you're not at the center. For Peter, it was essential that this question of identity be firmly settled before we get into the next thing. I love what this one commentary that I read says this. At the center of his gospel, Mark's gospel, Mark placed Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah. Up till this point, the underlying question of the whole gospel had been, who is Jesus? After Peter's declaration on behalf of the 12, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter spoke kind of on behalf of the 12. He was known to do that. After Peter's declaration, Mark's narrative changes and now is oriented toward the cross and the resurrection. From now on, the underlying question is, what kind of... Of, um, excuse me, from now on, the underlying double question is, what kind of Messiah is he? If he is the Messiah, what kind is he? And what does it mean to follow him? Saying that this passage here is the pivotal passage of the whole gospel of Mark. Who do, pe- who do you say that I am? And then the whole thing shifts. The journey of following comes after the decision to follow. That's why we spend so much time here talking about not just what the word of God says, because it's important. You obviously tell, can tell the Bible is important. God's word is alive and active. It's, it's God's word. We want to take heed. How does a young man cleanse his way? Take heed according to the word of God. But we also talk a lot about not just what the word of God says, but who God is. Because we can tell you to do this, to do that, to do this. But if you're just doing these as another voice, then you're not going to understand what Jesus is getting at. Where he, what he wants is, who is Jesus? He's the one. It will change the way you do the following. So what does it look like? to follow Jesus. This is where I get the great exchange. Let me give you this in one sentence, and then I'll break it down in a couple of points. What does this mean, this great exchange? Here it is. You exchange your way for God's way. 
following Jesus, if Jesus is the one, he is it all the heaven and earth, people, creation, different tribes, different geographical locations, sin, um, reconciliation, human identity, if it is all centered around Jesus, that's the exchange. We, we, we don't center our lives around us any longer. We don't be self-centered. We become Jesus-centered. That's the great exchange. Now, here at the bridge, and in my life personally, I have found when I try to put things into uh, formulas, it's easy to end up with some religious actions that I do, but I often find them being void of my heart. I was talking to, um, I was on a bike ride yesterday with a couple people here. I won't call them out because I'm going to talk about uh, areas in their life that they're not doing too good. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But we were riding our bikes yesterday, and we were talking about a Bible reading plan. And they're on a Bible reading plan, and that's awesome because I am all for spiritual disciplines. I am all for them because we want to live a disciplined life. That requires putting things into practice. If you can really want to get buff, like you can really desire it in your heart. God knows my heart. Yeah, but you never go to the gym. So it takes some discipline and some structure to see some stuff happen. I believe that firmly with things of spiritual nature. But sometimes we can put things into practice and we try to make it a formula. Nine steps to this, four steps to that. Because our brains, our human brains, naturally put things into formulas so we can attain them and and do them. Formulas in the spiritual nature can can be hard. They they bring about sometimes traditions. We've been talking about that for the past month or two. You end up doing the thing, but you forget why you're doing it. So traditions are hard, but you know what I do? Um, subscribe to in scripture is patterns. God doesn't give us formulas to do, but, but oftentimes he gives us patterns to follow. We see things like, follow me as I follow Christ. And we see things like we're seeing here, Jesus is going to lay down a pattern for us. So let's keep going in the text. Back in Mark, picking up in verse 31, and it says, and then he began. See, Jesus started something new here. Who do you say that I am? You're the Savior. You're the Lamb of God. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. Imagine this teaching. Like they just had this moment, like this let's go moment. Who do you say that I am? You're Jesus. You're right. And I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. He's all, let's go. Then he began to teach them that he is, and he said it plainly, that he's going to be captured, (coughs) suffer, and die, be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. They're like, what? That That makes zero sense. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, so Peter pulled him aside and was like, no, no, no. That's that's not right. Why are you saying that? Far be it from you, Lord. That's not how it's supposed to go. You're the one. We've been waiting for you. It's time to kick some butt. Put us back on the map. Get Rome out of here. 
Get us good to go again. And Peter looked around, or excuse me, Jesus looked around, and he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. In the same conversation, Jesus going, Blessed are you. You're Peter. I'm going to do a work in your life that the gates of hell won't prevail against. Get behind me, Satan. You're just like, this is like, which Jesus are we getting today? Like the kind, like let's go, or like the this one. Get behind me, Satan. Then he says this, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Even after your confession, there will be times of confusion. To all of you that are walking with Jesus in your life and you're trying to honor him with your life and hear his voice and you want to do what he says and you, he is the one, you've said it. Let me just tell you this. Even after your confession, you will have times of confusion. Lord, I don't understand. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't seem like that's the, the right way to go. It says, he spoke these words plainly. The way of the cross was God's will, and Jesus refused to abandon it. But it didn't fit well with a Messiah or Savior, with what this Messiah or Savior was supposed to accomplish, according to Peter, and according to those that were waiting for him. There is a great discrepancy sometimes between who we know Jesus to be and what we think he should do. That's worth thinking about. There's a great discrepancy sometimes between who we know Jesus to be and what we think he should do. Look at our cultural situation. How would we have the bracelets? What would Jesus do? Well, it depends on who you ask. And you'll get a lot of answers and you'll get a lot of passion, but I think oftentimes... What Jesus would do looks nothing like what we think he should do. It looks more like Joshua when he had crossed and getting ready to cross into the promised land or had just crossed into the promised land and he had to fight some battles. The promised land wasn't a place of no battles. It was a place of promised victory if he would fight. And as he was praying going, God, please help me, an angel appeared, the angel of the Lord. And this is what Joshua says to him. Are you on my are you on our side? The godly side? Or on their side? Fair question. The angel of the Lord's response? No. Are you on my side? I'm not I'm not on your side. I'm not on their side. Can't put God on sides. And I think a lot of times what God would want to do is something that we haven't even thought about yet. It's a deeper thing. While we're on the subject of not understanding, uh, of knowing who God is, but being confused about what he wants to do, I want to throw something in there. I'm going to talk to Christians in the room for a second, for those that are following Jesus. People who aren't followers of Jesus, they don't understand the things of God. So when you treat them like they should, you're doing 
you can do more harm than good because here's why. You know when you're surprised that people don't respond the way you think they should respond? You shouldn't be as surprised because it says, or, or when people don't think the way you think they should think, how could you think that way? And it's easy to look down on someone. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. This is a good verse to think about, to write down, remember. But the natural man, when you see the, the term natural man in Scripture, it means man on his own, the self-centered, my kingdom man. Life is about me. Um, that's, that's what it's talking about, the natural man. It means apart from the spirit of God. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. The things of God must be filtered through the Spirit of God for them to land where they're supposed to land. So for people who aren't filtering the Word of God, have you ever heard someone say, "Um, I read the Bible and this and that, but after I gave my, and it was like it sort of made sense, and Jesus was a good person, I guess. But then when they crossed that line, they were like, Jesus is the one. They say they opened the Bible, and it was like alive. And God was speaking to them in new ways. It's because the things of God are, they, um, the Spirit of God breathes life into the Word of God. But people who are the natural man, they don't understand. It actually says it's foolishness. So that means we look like fools sometimes. So sorry, but I feel it too. Where I'm like, no, I'm not a fool. So we can respond in a couple of ways. We can get super prideful and be like, you're the fool. (laughs) Or we can do what Jesus did and what he's going to talk about here, and we can take it on the chin. But we can keep our eyes raised knowing that we may look the fool, but we're still leading the pack. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Check this out. For who has known the mind of the Lord that that he may instruct them? But we have the mind of Christ. People, the natural man, don't have the mind of Christ. The devil doesn't know the mind of Christ. He doesn't know what God is thinking. He knows the word of God, the devil, really well. But he does not know the mind of God. He does not have the spirit of God. We have the mind of Christ because we have the spirit of God living within us. So we have allowed a new tension to come into our lives and rule us. When the spirit isn't there, there's no tension. You do what you do because it's what you do. When you say, how could this person do this thing and not feel guilty about it? It's like they're looking to just get, and they get away with it and they keep going because there is no tension in that person's life about their kingdom and the kingdom of God. It's just their kingdom. That's the natural man. That's the natural order of things. So when you say, Jesus, you're the one in my life, Come into my life. Come into my heart. Be my Lord. Direct my life. You, in essence, you're, you're asking for a lot of <laughs> issues 
to come in. It's called the battle of the flesh and spirit to where all of a sudden you're wrestling with things you've never wrestled with before. The world doesn't have that. It's foreign. A new tension that resides in us. Now let me tell you also this, followers of Jesus. If you are following Jesus in your life, the devil will be caught off guard constantly. Because he doesn't know what God is doing in your life. He just sees the effect of it. That's why he comes in at some crazy ways to, to when God's hand is upon you, the enemy's hand is against you. But he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So the devil is against it, but he doesn't know what God is doing. He's just trying to cut it off at different passes in your life. Bring things your way to cause you to not go forward. This is exactly what the devil did in Jesus's life. When he was tempted by the devil for 40 days in the desert, what did the devil do? He quoted God's word, but he didn't know God's plan. So he tried to get him to do his own kingdom now versus what God wanted to do. He was like, you surely don't need to do this. It's not that uh, he just wanted him to listen to what, the, what Satan was telling him. No, 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 don't do that. Do it your way now. That's the whole thing. So Jesus did that, and now he gives us a pattern on how to do it in our lives after him. So know this. Tell yourself this. I tell myself this. I had talked to a friend in the back this morning, and she and I were talking about it. The devil can't gain control, but he can gain ground. He can't gain control of your life, but he can gain ground in your heart, ground in your mind. It's a turf war constantly that we're, that we're fighting. This is it. This is the battle of the spirit and the flesh, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, the temporary, the here and now, the eternal. This is what we're involved in. And the great exchange comes when we take what we have and exchange it for what Jesus offers. That's what he's talking about. Who am I? You're the Lord. Then this is what it looks like to follow me. I'm going to ask you, for an exchange. I'll give you what I have, he would say, if you give me what you have. This is what it looks like. Verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let them, so it says him, but it's talking about a person, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Here's the pattern. Not a formula, because it's going to look a little different for each person. Here's the pattern that Jesus gives. Here's the pattern for his followers. First of all, he will never ask you to do anything that he didn't first do himself. Jesus laid his life down to the will of the Father. He prayed in the garden before he went to the cross, which we'll be talking about in a couple of weeks on Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. But Jesus said, Father, if there is another way, let it be. I don't want to do this. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. So he's not asking you to do something he doesn't know what it is to do. What he's saying is if you do it, he will give you the strength 
the mind of Christ, the peace of God, and the power of God to do it. We talked about transformation. That's what Jesus is after. Transformation of Jesus is is for us to move from self-centered lives to Jesus-centered lives. So when he says, follow me, so he says, if you would want to come after me, we're going to break it down in two parts. Deny himself, take up his cross. So you can jot down, deny myself, take up my cross. Now these are the patterns to get to what? He says, to follow me. That's what Jesus is after. The transformation is a person who follows Jesus. This requires constant recentering in action. Sort of like, Lord, thank you for today. In the morning, thank you for today. God, may today, may I do everything that is in front of me that would bring you honor, that would bring you glory, that might help somebody know who they are in you more. It's not saying, Lord, today, may I do every churchy thing I can think of so you'll be proud of me. That's not what living a Jesus-centered life is. What living a Jesus-centered life is, it's like, God, you are the one. I am living for you. You died for me. Your spirit lives within me. Everything that I have been charged with today, my job, my family, these are things that God has asked you to be faithful with. So you have to do them. And if you want to do a good, good job, you've got to try. So it's not that you don't try to do a good job, try to treat people with honor, try to run a government well, try to do these things good. It means that in all of your trying, God is at the center. Lord, help me. That's what it is. There are things you must do in order to live Jesus-centered lives. And here's what Jesus says. If you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. Okay. Um, I love what this commentator said about this. Warren Wiersbe. He said, denying self is not the same as self-denial. We practice self-denial when, for good purpose, we occasionally give up things or activities. A diet, um, something for Lent, you know, when you give up something, practicing self-denial, it's for a good purpose. But we deny self when we surrender ourselves to Christ and determine to obey his will. Let me give you a verse that summarizes, summarizes this so good, and it's worth memorizing because I say it all the time. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. That's what it means. It means don't let your intellect be the spot where you stop pursuing God. I don't understand, therefore I won't go. Let it be the beginning of faith. Lean not on your own understanding in everything that you do. Acknowledge God, and he will direct your paths. Another translation says he'll make your path straight. He'll get you where you need to go. We do this 
a couple of ways. But I think the simplest way is if you just simply acknowledge there are things that you don't know that God does know. Where the rubber meets the road in a Christian's life or in a person's life, it's simply saying, Lord, I don't know. But I trust that you do. So help me to do the right thing in this time and then leave the rest to the Lord. That's a walking in faith. Deny yourself. Lay down your way for the way of Jesus. If you need a reminder of this, go back to the beginning of Matthew and read what is called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is all about laying down the kingdom of God for the king, or excuse me, the kingdom of man for the kingdom of God. Jesus spends two chapters and all sorts of stuff talking about what it is to live in this uprooted kingdom. And at the end of it, he sums it up like this. And he says, seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. He talks about all the things that we're striving for in life, but he goes, but if you recenter, if you deny what it is that you think you want, he's like, that's what the natural man looks for. But if you recenter your life this way, I promise all these things will be added as you need. So that's deny yourself. If you want to follow Jesus, deny yourself. Now take up your cross and follow me. One historian said cross-bearing was not an established Jewish metaphor. Like it is for us. My cross to bear. My mom used to say that. I was not raised in the church. I was just like, what does that even mean? It's just like, oh, it's this thing I have to do. Woe is me. My cross to bear. Cross-bearing was not an established Jewish metaphor, but the figure was appropriate in Roman-occupied Palestine. It brought to mind the sight of a condemned man who was forced to demonstrate his submission to Rome by carrying part of his cross through the city to his place of execution. Thus, to take up the cross was to demonstrate publicly one's submission and obedience to the authority against which he had previously rebelled. We don't rebel against Rome. We have rebelled against the heart of God, natural man. And this is what taking up your cross. Let me read that again. Thus, to take up one's cross is to demonstrate publicly one's submission and obedience to the authority against which he had previously rebelled. I love it. That's saying, Lord, I demonstrate publicly, you know, the way you live your life, because it's in public. This doesn't mean you have to grab a cross and walk down the street. Some people will do that in this coming, this next week. Some people will take something like this, super literal, in Passion Week, which is coming up in a month or so. And they'll carry a cross down the street and have people whip them. And it's to, because of this verse. If you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. Um, he says, take up your cross, not take up his cross. Jesus took up a cross, was beaten and battered and cut and nailed to it and died for the sins of mankind. Guess what? You don't need to do that. 
Matter of fact, you could do that and it wouldn't work because you're not the one. Jesus is the one. So when we look at what Jesus did on the cross, which we're going to celebrate the heck out of it in two weeks or in, when Easter comes, because there's victory to be had. When Jesus died on the cross, there's victory for us. It is finished. The debt of sin is paid. You can learn a new way to be human, full of life and joy and love, not because of the, the, your cross, but because of Jesus' cross. Bless you. So to take up your cross does not mean go be killed by the government. Go rebel to a place where you are silenced or put away. It means commit yourself to God and his plans and his purposes for your life. You show allegiance and obedience to what he says, to what he wants to do, to what his building of him building his kingdom in your life and in the world. And the way that it's said, it doesn't mean do this once. It means do it every day. He who wants to follow me, let, it, let them deny themselves, pick up their cross every single day and follow me. There's an exchange to be made, a great exchange. For whoever would save his life, and we'll end right here, for whoever would cha- cha- uh, save his life, verse 35, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and for forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? What can he exchange for it? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here's the point with this. The promise, is, the promise here, if you lose yourself in Jesus and his purposes, you will step in and discover a way of living that you were created to experience. If you will lay down your purposes, if you will lay down um, your kingdom, The promise is you will step into something that is eternal. You will step into something that will, he says, what good does a prophet a man to gain the whole world? You know, that's what the devil himself offered Jesus. Somehow, when they were in the desert, it says, and and the devil took him up on a high mountain. Some commentators say that they were able to look through the future. They didn't just see Rome and Jerusalem, some, some would say they saw New York City, Washington, D.C., every London, all of the, the world sit, stage, the kingdoms of man, the greatness that it could be, and that was Satan's offer. I'll give you all of this. And Jesus is telling us, he knows from experience, what good if you could gain everything. We need to hear this in America more than ever because we're so distracted. We need another payment. We need another thing. We need another time fill. We need another toy. 
We need more stuff because if we can get more stuff, we gain more stuff. What good does it profit a person to gain everything you think you ever wanted and lose your own soul in the process? When you deny yourself and what it is you think you want and you recenter around Jesus, he's the promises you will gain more than you ever thought you could lose. That's what I want people to know. I could tell you all day long, but the Spirit of God's got to lay it on your heart. Blessed are you, for man did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's why we pray our butts off (laughs) before church starts. Lord, could you let something be done today that we could never do on our own? Could you speak somehow through the stuff that I have prepared and could you do what you say that you'll do and you'll speak to the depth of a person's soul that they might see what they have been chasing, they're finding themselves empty and then if they would simply exchange what they have been doing with the acknowledgement that it's all about you, Jesus, that you would come into their life, you would put your Holy Spirit into them that they could live and see and function in the way in which they were designed to and all at the same time have a new tension and hardship that comes with following Jesus that you've never experienced before. It's like the most beautiful, hardest thing ever. Jesus actually calls it life to the fullest. At the end of the day, following Jesus is exchanging your will for his will, your kingdom for his kingdom, your way for his way, your life for his life, your death for his death. I'm reading a book right now, and I want to close with this quote. Actually, I just finished it, and I'm really proud because it was like 300 pages. Um, but this author, his name's Eugene Peterson. Um, he said this. I read it just a couple days ago. It was so powerful. He said this. Resurrection does not have to do exclusively with what happens after we are buried or cremated. It does have to do with that. But first of all, it has to do with the way we live right now. Then he says this, only where, are, only, only where there are graves can there be resurrection. Only where there are graves can they be resurrection. We practice our death by giving up our will to live on our own terms. Only in that relinquishment or renunciation are we able to practice resurrection. But that sentence in there has been sticking with me. I'm going to think about it for a long time, and I wanted to offer it to you. Only where there is a grave can there be resurrection, meaning you can't have life without death. Being a Christian is about dying to yourself. And asking Jesus to be alive in your world. It's about saying, not my will, Lord, but yours. And entering in on this journey, it's called following Jesus. But there can't be hope of resurrection, power from heaven without death first. You can't run your own kingdom and serve in his as well. It's the power struggle. Welcome to the the struggle. 
May we pray for each other and support each other and seek God through his word and on our life groups and and in our relationships to be there for each other because we need each other. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. We acknowledge, Lord, that there are things going on in our world that we don't have the answers to. There are people in this room right now. I'll just be real with everybody here. There are people in this room right now that God has called me to be your pastor. And I cannot fix the problems in your life. I can't do it. I cannot fix the problems in my own life. For my life is not centered around myself, but centered around Jesus. And it's saying that, Lord, you have a way of doing something that sometimes seems like it's not even addressing the issue, but you are. You're hitting it from a deeper place. And so, Lord, I look around and I'm so thankful that there's this group and we're here worshiping you together and we want to know you more. We want to know the kingdom of God more, but we know that there are things that we need to die to ourselves in order for those things to happen. And that's a hard place. That's why it's so important that before we ever do anything, we need to know who we're doing it for. So we declare together, you are the savior of the world. You created us. You hold us together. You saw us when we turned and walked away from you and went our own way. And you didn't ghost us or cancel us. You went to the cross for us to make a way that we could be centered around you again. We can center ourselves around you because you centered yourself around us. So we declare this morning, Lord, we lose ourselves in the mess and we long to find ourselves in you. May we see you for who you are. And in turn, may we see clearly ourselves and those around us. Lord, we sing this song in response to you. We give to you financially of our tithes and offerings, all as a response to say we are centered around you. Thank you for today, for this awesome church. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, and everybody said Amen. Let's all stand in worship.